I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Sharma Taylor. Hi Sharma. Hi Lucy, I am so excited to be here. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure to have you here. So Sharma is a Jamaica writer and lawyer living between Jamaica and Barbados. She holds a PhD from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, obtained on a Commonwealth scholarship. Her short stories have been shortlisted four times for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize and have won several prizes, including the Frank Collymore Literary Endowment Award, Johnson and Amoy Achong Caribbean Writers Prize and the Queen Mary Wasafiri New Writing Prize. Her first novel, What a Mother's Love Don't Teach You, has recently been published by Virago. So, Sharma, let's start by talking a little bit about What a Mother's Love Don't Teach You, your brilliant uh, debut novel. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it, like set the scene for us, if you will, give them a taste of what they've got in store for them? Sure, Lucy. Um, The novel is basically set in Jamaica in the 1980s. It's around a lady called Dinah. So she's a maid, a helper. And 18 years before, she had given up her baby boy, newly born, you know, fresh out of the hospital, to an American couple that she was working for at the time who were living in Jamaica, the Steels. And, you know, she is convinced 18 years later that when she meets the son of another um, couple who are visiting her new employers, that this boy, Apollo, who is 18, is that baby that she had given up 18 years before. And the novel explores what happens after they've met. So the the ramifications of her belief and him going in search of her and sort of set against the, the political violence and turbulence of Jamaica in the wake of the 70s and, you know, garrison communities and area dance and all sort of mayhem ensues. But it, at the heart of it, it's about relationship. It's about, you know, family and what does family really mean. Mm, that's beautifully put I'm so interested in this um the fact that you wanted to write about Jamaica in the 1980s because like you say it is a period of great sort of political upheaval there's a lot of crime mm-hmm. but your novel explores sort of all levels of society so you see how it sort of infiltrates at different levels but what was it particularly about the 1980s that really drew you to that period was it just the turbulence of it and you wanted that to yes. sort of mirror the the intimate turbulence of this family as well yes and 
I grew up in the 80s. I'm an 80s kid. So, you know, I talk about... <laughs> excuse cassette. to go back, right? Yes, excuse to go back. <laughs> cassette players, you know, certain things I talk about that generation nowadays has no clue what I'm talking about. You know, the time before <laughs> cell phones and internet and all of those things. Um, so it, it, it's a time that I personally grew up in and loved. And it fits in in terms of the struggle between the woman who Apollo knows as his mom, Celeste, um, an American, African-American, and Dinah, they sort of struggle over Apollo in terms of who tries to claim him. And in, in a grander scheme in that period, Jamaica was sort of being claimed, in a struggle as well, between communist ideals. So at the time, our prime minister in the 70s was very close to Fidel Castro in Cuba. And so America had a fear about another communist country being in their backyard virtually. And so a struggle between communism and capitalism, you know, and so an island in the middle in a tug of war. Eventually capitalism won, of course. America, you know, ensured that certain sanctions were there that put turned the minds of Jamaicans against the sort of soft um communist experiment that Manly was going down into. So you know, the novel is after the successful win at the election of the, the party, the Jamaica Labour Party, um, who is pro-America, pro-capitalism, and sort of exploring that dynamic. So I'm using what happens on the big picture political scale and sort of looking at it in a family dynamic as well. So I wasn't conscious of that until after I wrote it, though, I will be honest. When somebody really? pointed this out to me, I was like, oh... <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I, I would say that I'm not that clever. I really just want to write the story like that comes to me, you know. And I, first and foremost, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm a writer. So I'm trying to capture the story and the characters as authentically and as truthfully as I can. Well, on that point, am I right in thinking that the novel grew out of a short story called Sun Sun's Birthday that you were that was shortlisted for the 2008 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. And so I'm really fascinated to know, at what point did you realise that this was just one episode in what was a bigger narrative? And when did you realise that, you know, had you always imagined it like that? Or did it suddenly come to you one day that actually there was more to be written here? That's a brilliant question, Lucy. So it was 2018 and it was shortlisted. And at the time, the story... I was doing a postgraduate writing course. I was living in Barbados at the time, um, moved there for a job, and I was doing a postgraduate writing course at the University of the West Indies there, which is open to the public. And my professor, Jane Bryce, who is a brilliant writer herself, I submitted this story as my final piece for that course. So handed it in, done with the course, happy moving on. And then she says to me, but Sharma, what happens after? Because the short story ends at the moment where Dinah meets the boy she's convinced is what, who she calls Sun Sun. That's the name she gave to her baby. And so she creates a commotion in her new employer's house. There's a tussle. There's some wrestling. You know, when his his mother, Celeste, comes and the two of them fight over him. So, so Professor Bryce was like, okay, what happens next? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, obviously... <laughs> Apollo goes in search of her after because in that scene, you know, Diana is ejected from the house. So um, Apollo must try to find her where she lives, you know, and, you know, you've set up the scene of the community in which Diana lives and the people there and how does Apollo interact with them? And, you know, basically she asked some questions I didn't know the answer to. And so it caused me to then go back to the drawing board 
and and sort of flesh out what happens next. I know for me, I'm a short story writer. That's where I started. That's where my heart is. Some stories end after 5,000 words or 3,000 words, but there are some stories that questions remain. And I think those ones are the ones that are best built into a, a longer piece of fiction. Mm. And when you came then to kind of think, okay, I'm going to actually turn this into something more. I'm going to keep going with the story. Did it come quite naturally to you? Or because, as you say, you're a short story writer. So, kind of, were you quite, I don't know, were you quite nervous about taking on a kind of a novel in its entirety? Of course. Of course. Not, I'm completely daunted. Like, who am I to write a novel? I'm used to, like, if, if, in fact, think of it like I'm from a track and field country. Jamaica is known for sprinting, you know, where sprinters not marathon runners i don't know like i just want to write the story and be done with it like that's my natural inclination write it fast get it done i'm moving on but this now having to stick with it for the long haul having to build out you know the plot and then subplots and all of those things it was it was really really difficult i have to say but i enjoyed it and i just viewed it as like a big experiment to see could i do this and and again just for me, I write each chapter almost like a short story. You know, it's told from different voices, different perspectives. I use first person. At some point, I'm using second person, you as well. I'm using third person as well. Like I, I mix it up. And that for me kept it interesting for me and kept me from feeling bored. Because my philosophy is if I'm bored writing this, people are going to be bored reading it. So I try to <laughs> do right what I would find interesting or what would put me at the edge of my seat or what would make me laugh and make me cry. And, you know, I'm loving when I get the reader feedback on this book that, okay, in one page I'm crying, the next page I'm laughing, the next page I'm thinking. And that's the kind of book I like reading or that I would want to read. And, you know, so I, I just kept going with it. And you know, luckily I have a wonderful editor in Rose at Virago and, you know, wonderful editorial agent, um, Kelly Ogden at Janko Nesbitt. And they also help me craft it. So it, it's like a rough piece of marble and they helped me to shape it into something that was really more compelling than it was when I'd finished. I'm so glad you put, brought up that point about the sort of the multiple voices, because I think that as a reader, that was my experience of it, that these polyphonic voices, the fact you're never, you know, you're back and forth between characters, but you're never just in one person's mind or yes. from one person's point of view. Yes. So even though it, it absolutely hung together as a, as, a, as a novel, it made me think while I was reading it that it had this sort of slightly episodic structure in terms yes. of that movement between. And there's a real, um, sort of lightness of touch and a real kind of speed I think there and kind of yes. you know, agility between the characters which again made it sort of a, a really exciting read I think exactly what you're talking about that you're always thinking well what's so-and-so making of this or what's yes. going to happen next from this point of view yes listen Lucy I love hearing that like that's what I want every reader <laughs> to feel like <laughs> definitely definitely that that makes you feel so happy to hear you say that well I'm sure that's what other people are saying as well the other thing I wanted to ask about is that because obviously the title you know you've got the mother's love up there straight away we've talked about um you know briefly about Diana the character who thinks that um son son this guy Apollo is her son has come back to 
um, been brought back to Rizzit World. We've got Celeste, his um, his mother, his American mother, uh, who is sort of fighting for him. So there's a lot about kind of women in this book, but also it feels very much to me like it's a novel about what it means to be a man and particularly yes. a kind of young man and a young man's responsibilities and how he's perhaps supposed to be in the world. And Apollo is not only is he sort of torn between maybe two families, two cultures, but he's also finding his feet just in terms of how he's going to, you know, he's 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 you know he's very young. He's only sort of just out of childhood, adolescence, well, just out of adolescence, and he's working out how to be a man in the world as well, isn't he? Definitely, Lord Lucy, you hit the nail right on the head because in in Caribbean societies, a lot of homes are headed by a, a mom, single mothers. You don't have fathers are usually visiting relationships with the mothers, so the father may have five or six baby mothers or, you know, living in different locations. And, you know, one of the things I've seen growing up is the idea of mothers saying, well, I don't know how to teach my son to be a man. That's what a man is for. I'm a woman. I don't know how to father this child. I've had to do it because I've stepped into the shoes. But can a woman really teach you how to be a man? You know, it's an intriguing question. And then the question is, what does it mean to, to be a man? It's not just about these notions of traditional masculinity. And what Dinah really tries to teach Apollo is about being a, a decent human being, you know, how to, 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 to take ownership for your mistakes and to try to fix them and to genuinely care about people and to be humble and to put aside ego and all these other things, you know. And the title comes from a scene where, I think in exasperation, she's like, well, I just can't do it anymore. Like, I've tried to teach you, but there are some things a mother's love can't teach you. You just have to figure it out on yourself, by yourself and make a decision about the type of human being you are going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's got a lot of different, I mean, he's got some very good role models in his life, but obviously he also comes across other people who are maybe not such brilliant role models. And there's that tension between yes. Is he going to rise to certain responsibilities? Is he going to run away? Is he going to, you know, and what, and also what is expected of him? Like, what should exactly. he kind of go out on a limb for, and what should he kind of fight against as exactly. well? Exactly. So. And the, the added thing is, he is a black man growing up in America in a very white privileged society who didn't have a black father. He's told his black father died when he was, you know, before he was born or very young. So. He grew up in a society that's very different from who he identifies with. And he's trying to find himself. And what does it mean to be a black person? And that's one of the things that draws him to Jamaica, this predominantly black-run country, black-governed, you know, we're a majority here, not a minority. And and again, still we have economic and other challenges and how to deal with that coming from a privileged background that he's from, one of wealth and not coming into these inner city communities as if he's going to save them, but he can't help but try to anyway. And so it's it's sort of him working it out as well throughout the novel. I mean, there are points readers have said they feel like hitting him upside the head, like, come on, Apollo, do better, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think his voice was actually the hardest one to write because I don't think he knows himself yet or mm. what he sounds like, you know? Deliberately, there are no chapters in first person with him, deliberately, because when I tried to write them, they just they didn't feel real because he himself is a comedian, depending on who he's talking to and the context that he's in. And he hasn't really figured out who he is yet. And so it was harder for me as a writer to connect with him as a you know, character. 
that's so interesting I hadn't even considered that because I felt sort of so close to him mm-hmm. like all the other characters in here I never considered there wasn't anything from the first person mm-hmm. he's main in dialogue like most times there may be maybe a couple very short ones where he is reflecting or talking there's a few little bits where you're sort of in his head and thinking particularly I think when he first is in Jamaica and he does talk a lot about how it's such a strange to be in an environment where there's a lot of black people around and he's not the minority yes exactly correct but contrast it with Dinah whose first person chapters happen quite a lot because I think she was the first one that came to me and so she's the character that I sort of latched on to most how fascinating. Oh, Shama, I could talk about it for all podcasts, but we're going to have to move on to some of our other questions. But I'm sure that any listeners who haven't yet, um, you know, had a chance to read the book will be running out to buy it now. So I uh, hope I so. Highly recommend it. Go, go, go. Buy the book, guys. <laughs> buy the book. I need the sales. <laughs> but you heard her. Buy the book. Um, okay. So let's talk about some other books now. So tell me about um, a few books that are currently on your bedside table, please. Okay. So Lucy, I'm a big fan fan of Caribbean um, fiction and mm. so for me um, I read widely from Barbados, Trinidad, Jamaica and there's a Trinidadian writer I'm loving right now, Celeste Mohammed. her debut novel in stories called Pleasant View um, it's really a short story collection but can be read almost like a, a novel um, Lisa Allen Agostini The Bread the Devil Need she's a Trini writer as well which was, she was shortlisted for the Women's Prize recently um, yeah. Jamaican Cordella Forbes she wrote A Tall History of Sugar and Barbadian Cherie Jones whose debut novel How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House was also shortlisted for the Women's Prize that's a lot of recommendations for our, <laughs> for our listeners, which is really good because they can go off and kind of, you know, fill their, fill their shelves. How do you choose your kind of reading? Are you, are you constantly, what's the situation? Are you kind of going, are you buying it in bookshops? Are you kind of uh, keeping in touch with what's being newly published? Like, tell me a bit how you choose these books. Yes, I keep in touch with what's being newly published and especially coming out of the region. Like, I'm very passionate about books written by people from the Caribbean um, and I think we're going through a sort of moment now where people are interested and focused up and about Caribbean books there's a market for it there's interest and you know I make it my business that new books coming from writers that come from my part of the world I seek them out I buy them in bookshops get them online I'm more a physical bookshop type of person because I like to hold a book in my hand and smell it and feel it and fall asleep with it uh, but yeah, I, I make it my mission. Also, too, because I write in that genre of Caribbean fiction, it, it's in my best interest to know what's out there, what other people are saying and doing. Because I think as a writer, you're constantly in conversation with the other works that are out there as well. You're adding to that body of work. And so it's important to know where your voice fits into that. Hmm. And does it feel like you're part of a kind of community on a in a bigger sense as well that you're having um not just you're reading these writers works but they're people that you are sort of in conversation with in your own books or kind of you know following I I don't know if you're either friends with some of them like is there a sort of a bigger sense of community around it as well yes there is I I I must say that the women who I mentioned a while ago about their books they've been very supportive of me as well um (laughs) this is what we like to hear though yes yes we do have a community because Caribbean is a literary world is very small. So you will invariably know somebody who knows somebody. And um, I find that they have been extremely supportive. You know, writers like Claire Adam from Trinidad, Leonie Ross, others, they've 
they they go out of their way to publicize your work, to give you a good quote, to put you on the social media, to listen to you if you have questions, answer them. Um, I've gotten so many useful tips from writers in um, Bahamas. You mentioned the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. So in that community as well, I've met writers out of Barbados, Shakira Bourne, Bahamas, Alexa Tolas, and ladies who I've kept that link with so that, you know, if I'm having a bad day, like I'm writing crap, or could you have a look at this? What do you think? It, it, it's not so I, you don't feel so isolated when you have people in all over the world in the Caribbean as well who would say yeah have a look at this or this is what I think and you know giving thoughts and it, it makes a huge difference I think every writer needs to be connected to some sort of community yeah you need that help around you don't you for the Definitely. for the bad days and the good I think you know Definitely. to kind of get you through and to feel that you've got um some you know people you know have got you got your back basically yes. and will be there for you yeah yes. and I think also it's the sense of not writing into a void I think if you feel that your work is in conversation with other people and that you're sort of all pushing towards something similar however different your books are individually but that you're you know together creating this sort of you know a, a new body of literature that's got to be quite exciting as well it is it is it is and so you as you said part of this movement of of people you know and especially women who are you know putting their I think writing is an act of bravery most of us have day jobs most of us have other things not all of us have the privilege of being a full-time writer and sometimes you you feel that imposter syndrome where if you don't and having another writer who's going through it like you who completely understands when you say I'm not sure where to take this or you know, because to the average person, sitting down with a with a notepad or keyboard and like just isolating yourself for hours to put words on a page, it seems like a sort of insanity. Most people are like, yep. okay, what are you doing? Like, how can you enjoy <laughs> that? That's my definition of torture, some people would say. But, you know, the special breed of people who love that, who love to put characters down on the page and them come to life, you know, they're your tribe and they can understand you in a way that, average person just can't mm, mm, really important and I think this sort of ties neatly in or leads very neatly into the next question that you're going to tell me about a couple of podcasts that you've been listening to recently is right, that right right so there is a podcast called um, Unstoppable Yes You run by Curlis Philip who is a, a creative a Caribbean creative as well she's mainly in marketing but she highlights again the best in um, Caribbean culture Caribbean literature and you know, I think people who do that sort of work, they deserve recognition, they deserve, you know, doing this completely, not, you know, it's not for profit, just doing it because she wants to showcase Caribbean voices and Caribbean creatives. And I think that's just such a beautiful mission. Um, and she's a special human being as well. And then the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival run out of Brooklyn that focuses on uh, again, Caribbean voices in the diaspora as well. Um, they have a podcast called Coco Pod. Um, so that's run by Marsha Messiah Aaron. And again, she and her team are doing a great job to showcase Caribbean voices. You know, it's it's such a beautiful thing when you can write in your own voice, in your patois, in your creolized English or whatever you want to call it and, and know that it can resonate and a light is being you know shone on it to say this matters keep doing what you're doing so 
those two Caribbean Focus podcasts, I think, are amazing and I encourage um, writers, even from outside the region, to, to give it a listen. Mm. I'm interested. Are you listening to them um, first and foremost as a reader or as a writer, or is there kind of no difference? Are you, That's are a you good question. To... This is a really good <laughs> question because it's the same thing when I'm reading a book too. Because when I'm reading a book, it's like two halves of my brain because I'm reading it as a reader, but I'm also reading it as a writer to understand. I felt this on page five. What did they do to make me feel this way and try to analyze it? But invariably, I I, I usually can't maintain a distinction now. Like it very, I sit back into the consumer of the product. I'm the reader, you know. I'm <laughs> I'm just going along with the flow and you know stuff like that. So I try to intellectually have that separation. But hard, I'm a, I'm a big time reader, so I can't pass a bookshop without going into it and buying books. That's just ever since I was a kid. That's just me. And even if I weren't writing, I'd always be reading. And I actually think every writer really should be an avid reader mm-hmm. I'm always a little bit surprised when people say they they aren't avid readers and they're writers yes it, just because I don't I sort of don't get the the disconnect seems such an odd one that's all very yeah. much but I guess it takes all kinds so some people it works for them but for me even when I'm writing there's some writers who say when they're writing a, a novel they can't read anything else they have to put everything else down for me, I'm the opposite. What I'm inspired when I'm writing my novel, I put it down, read a chapter uh, from somebody's book or read a short story and something in it sparks something in me, an idea that gives life to what I'm writing. You know, I am certain and sure of my own voice. You know, I'm not going to be mirroring anybody else's, but the, the, the creativity sparked through engaging with other creative works. So for me, even when I'm writing a manuscript, I'm reading, I'm looking at a book of poetry, I'm reading this, I'm reading that, and then just all of that somehow, you know, gives me that creative spark to, to lean into what I'm doing. Mm. Do you think of particular writers as having, um, I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, but sort of giving you permission to write the things that you want yes. to write? Have, Yes. Have there been people that you think you've read and you thought, well, they've done that or they've done, you know, X, which means that mm-hmm. I think I could do Y. I could try something new myself. Definitely. And I would say for me, that was one of the writers. There are many, but one that mentioned, oh, Kai Miller, out of Jamaica. And um, I remember reading, he writes books, um, Augustone, The Same Earth. And when I'm reading his stuff, when I was reading his stuff, um, I've only started returning to writing maybe like eight years ago. I used to write when I was a teenager, stopped when I went into law school. So I was just writing legal opinions and briefs and contracts. And I sort of revisited it eight years ago. And I remember reading Primula's stuff and I'm like, wow, he did this? He said this? Um, without apology, without trying to translate this patois? Like, it was just, it just blew my mind and I was like you know what I'm just gonna lean into it I'm just gonna do that and the beauty about places like Virago and editors like Rose you know when I'm I wrote something and then I'm thinking I don't know if, if she's gonna understand or you know what this means and she doesn't try to change it or take it out she's like no context yeah. tells me what it means you know she just wanted yeah. to be true to the story and you know trust the reader that they'll figure it out and so mm-hmm. even in that, so writers like that who write bravely, like Kai, and editors and publishers like Braga and like Rose who make you feel, no, d- just do it. Just just, just be true to it. And it gives you an awesome feeling of validation. I'll be back in just a moment. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lisey Scholes and I'm talking to Sharma Taylor about writers who have given her permission or made her brave and the idea of kind of moving forward and writing exactly what she wants to write. Um, I think for our next question, I want to ask you about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way. And you've picked a really interesting answer for this one, Sharma, I think. Yes. So Leona Ross, uh, who I absolutely love, she's Jamaican, currently based in the UK. Um, she wrote this book, This One Sky Day, which is speculative fiction. And I must confess, I don't usually read speculative fiction. I'm putting it out there. Although my work tends to have elements of magic in it, I mm. firmly like to be grounded in reality. But um, this book, One Sky Day, I found it fantastic. Um, I think in America it's called Poppy Show, but it's the women in it have um, special powers. So basically everyone in this book has what they call cores. So some special gift that you're given at birth that, you know, allows you to do things. Maybe, you know, one of the main characters, he's a chef, he can touch me to his hands and just season through his fingers. Um, somebody else can heal um, other people. Another one can detect if somebody's lying and things like that. And the women in there are like high priestesses. Some people say over women, but they occupy a central place in society in terms of identifying the gifts. Because some cores are not as obvious, so they can identify mm. it. And you know, although it is speculative fiction, what I liked about the book is that it's really just reflective of present-day Caribbean society and even former Caribbean society, where I mentioned before, women occupy dominant dominant positions it's matriarchal in a lot of ways you know mom and grandma run the household uh woman go the women go there and they work you know there's no job that a woman doesn't occupy in our society we have had a female prime minister we have women in senior positions in the corporate world in government in private sector you know so we see women here in our societies in the caribbean especially 
doing it because they've had to and doing it because in our society women can do anything in our minds because you know you're raised by a strong mother or grandmother or aunt um so it's just the idea of women being strong just as themselves and already being more than enough Mm. and how did you do you remember how you first came across this book I mean it was quite it was quite famous when it was published a few years ago I mean it got like a lot of attention a lot of people loved it were you recommended it by somebody in particular or remember I said I follow all the um so I I went into the bookshop and bought it in a bookshop here in Jamaica. Yeah, it's fascinating. You talk about like women being in very strong positions mm-hmm. in Jamaican society, for example, because they've been, is that because they've been sort of pushed into it a bit by having to take on and having to kind of step up and take these roles? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like there's obviously like, has it always been very um, common for you to have kind of, you know, female role models in your life, mm-hmm. both in your home life and in your work life? Has that always been the case? Um, yes, I'd say so, because again, you know, you think back to being a kid, the women who would be uh, instrumental would be like the teachers. In most Jamaican mm. schools, there are more female teachers than male teachers. So even as a kid, you know, the, the people who you would see or even if you go to the clinic, it's more nurses, let's say, than, and of course, female nurses. And, you know, so you, you grow up seeing women doing all sorts of things. And as mm. you said, that they've had to, you know, there's a whole sociological study around the fact that at universities, women here in Jamaica, they're outperforming men. You have more women enrolled, more women graduating, more women doing well in, in that academic forum. And it translates into jobs as well. You know, women mm. are increasingly occupying higher paid jobs, senior jobs, um, I'm not going to say that it's completely level because, for example, in a company, you know, you have the board. You'd have more men Mm. on the board than than women or the chair of the board would be a man as opposed to a woman. Um, We've only had one female prime minister. I think we should have had more than one by now after six years of independence from Britain. So there's still room to go, I would say. Mm. But for the most part, women have achieved a lot in Jamaica over the time. And as I said, people have been studying on quote unquote on the performance of, of men, but I don't see it as one has to advance at the expense of the other. But I think men in a large way have been, you know, victim of crime, for example, the victim of households that don't have the father figure there. And so those mm. guys are more likely to be caught up in the gangs. So the sort of gangs I mentioned in the book. You know, in those garrison communities, those Eridans represent for them that father figure. You know, mm. it's sociologists will tell you that men join gangs because they want brotherhood and fatherhood. They want that sort of belonging that those right. those those organizations offer. You know, so I think there are all those factors that would play into why women seem to be performing better in Jamaica. Yeah. But also it's kind of fascinating that just because women are performing better, then we have to say that men are underperforming. Maybe it's mm. just that women are overperforming. Yes, you know, yeah, you're of... right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. But I do think that a lot of young men especially get caught up in, especially in, in my country, unfortunately, criminal lifestyle, you know. And mm. one of those, it ends one way, either death yeah. or jail, you know. And so, so those are the kinds of things that, um, you know, I really think that we need to reverse as a country 
Yeah, well, that definitely comes across in the novel as well, mm-hmm. that you show how, how much that the men, particularly particularly the young men, I mean, the mm-hmm. women suffer to a certain degree, but it's mm-hmm. the men who get very entangled in yes. the kind of criminal, um, the sort of un- underworld, I don't know, you know, the yeah. kind of gang life that you, and how they, and the kind of inevitability of once they're in it, to try and get out is just incredibly yeah. hard. I mean, it's practically yeah. doesn't happen, right? Yeah, so, and I, I want to say too, there are men who are achieving, men who are doing great things, and yeah. men who are from single parent households, again, with a mom who who are examples of what it means to be a man, you know? So yeah. I wouldn't want anyone to get the impression that that is, you know, representative of all men here in Jamaica. No, 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 no. This is just one side of many many different kind of you know versions but also in talking about kind of strong women the final question I always ask of course is tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire and you've chosen someone very special to talk about today haven't you yes and I know it's very cliche Lucy to say your mom no no, I was just about to say do not please don't say that because I was just thinking I don't think in any of our episodes in all our seasons we've ever had someone talk about their mom I don't think yeah, I'm tr- I was racking my brains and trying to remember, but I don't think so. So it is not a cliche. And even if even if there had been someone before, it's not a cliche. Okay. Please tell me about your mom. Okay. So my mom, Yvonne, Yvonne Christie, is a former primary school teacher, retired now. And why I put her on a pedestal, why I admire her so much, is that she single-handedly raised two kids on a primary school teacher's salary in the 1980s. And... You know, she never once complained. She never once felt sorry for herself, expressed any bitterness or resentment. And, you know, it's on the other hand, not only did she not, you know, say, well, is me, she made me and my brother believe that we could do anything. You know, she was that kind of parent you came home with a 97 on the test. She'd be like, well, why isn't it 100? You know, and they're capable of it. And, Again, in the absence of any evidence, she just feels like, you know, she says, Shana, you know, if you tried this, you'd be good at it without any basis whatsoever. And I just believe her and I just do it. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I can do this, you know. And and she she imbued us with that strength because she gave us that precious thing called self-belief. And I, I think because of that, you know, for, for myself and my brother, we just don't think that there's anything we put our mind to we can't achieve. You know, um, and I owe that all to her. That's so wonderful, and also that's that's the very best gift I think you can give a child, right? That self belief, that sense of self, and that idea that yeah, you can try whatever you want and you won't fail. You'll do it, and you'll be brilliant at it. And also resilience too. I mean, sometimes um, failure is a lesson or preparation for success later. And so she, as I said, you know, economically didn't have a lot of stuff. I remember. She, she fed even that love of books. You know, I'll tell you this story that when I was growing up, there's a supermarket not far from our house that she, you know, she'd go to to buy groceries. And right at the checkout counter, they used to have a book stand with different books, like Ian and Blyton, you name it. It was children's books right at the counter, the checkout. And sometimes when we would try to sneak out of the house and not take me to the supermarket because she knows that I'm not the kid who's going to ask for candy or toys but at the checkout and like, mommy, could I get this book? And she didn't ever have the heart as a teacher to tell her child, no, you can't get this book. So it would mean putting back an item. She's like, boy, Sharma, I have to put down the rice, I have to put down the floor, I have to put down the meat. But she would try to let, make me get that book, you know. And, and for me, 
as a kid, these books opened my imagination because I, I wanted to be able to transform, you know, transport rather readers to a, a place that is different from where they actually were. You know, I've never been to England, but reading Eden Black and I know about snow and I know about this the fantasy world of elves and all these things as, as a kid living in Jamaica, I was able to, in my mind, travel all over the world. And um, that that's a gift she gave me as well. That's such a wonderful gift as well, that childhood and the joy of childhood reading. Yes. And like you say, fun, coming across, you know, opening a book and not knowing where you're going to end up exactly. when you fall into its pages. Exactly. Exactly. Sharma, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much for coming on to our shelves. Oh you made me feel at home Lucy like seriously like I feel like I could talk to you for hours you know just easy breezy and just so fun just so fun it was my pleasure I'm so glad you enjoyed it I'm so glad you enjoyed it Thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Sharma Taylor, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.